This is Life Worlds, the place where we explore life through other eyes and minds. Let's flip the script and discover how to orient your world around nature. I'm Alexa Permanish. Come join me as we get down and forage for fungi, stalk coyotes, draft laws for rivers, hum with beehives, sing bird language, and help beavers to dam again. Let these stories spark your reconnection to nature's multiverse. Learn how to bring ecosystems back to life, become an agent for other intelligences, and begin to see how you too are the sum of all life worlds. Hello, everyone. This episode is bringing us into a world that often is invisible to us, or rather, I should say, inaudible. The world around us hums and groans and tweets and vibrates with a chorus of communication, from the rumbling of continents and tectonic plates to the deep ultrasound of elephants as they migrate across vast terrains, to the humble plants as they emit frequencies to indicate when they are thirsty or stressed. Our planet's multiple intelligences use sound to convey information because sound is another form of energy, a means to transmit complex messages across substrates like air or water. However, much of this sound is invisible to us. Our human organs of perception can only detect a very limited range of this brilliant soundscape. And so, many of the conversations that go on all around us evade our observation. This is rapidly changing. Over the last decades, scientists have begun installing digital listening devices in nearly every ecosystem on the planet. The process of listening back and deciphering what nature is telling us is called bioacoustics when it comes to individual species and ecoacoustics when it's across a whole ecosystem. Massive advances in both hardware and artificial intelligence, many of which we're going to talk about today on the show, are permitting us to go where no artificial air has ever gone before. And the discoveries are astounding. As our guest Karen Backer shares in her book, The Sounds of Life, how digital technology is bringing us closer to the worlds of animals and plants. Bioacoustics is poised to alter humanity's relationship with our planet by expanding our sense of sound. If you think to when humans created the first microscope and a whole world of microorganismic life opened up to us, well, this time, rather than our sense of sight, it's our sense of sound that's expanding to completely new horizons. This is a powerful new window into the world of non-human meaning-making. And so today, you will hear stories of scientists who are using these technologies to decode the hidden worlds of sound. Recent breakthroughs are revealing that many, many more species are speaking in ways we didn't even know were possible and are showing far richer behaviors than we had known. The implications of this, and why I care, aside from just the sort of awe and poetry of it, is that there are real and practical applications for how we can support and work with life on Earth. We can, for example, develop mobile protected areas for animal climate refugees, or simply by singing, a whale can turn aside a container ship. Acoustic enrichment can help corals regenerate, and so much more. For me, these discoveries are a tale of fascination and hope, where the often disparate tools of technology and AI, which can really carry us further away from a connection to the world, can be used now to bring us closer to nature's intelligence and to a profound sense of wonder. Acknowledging these forms of communication also requires us to confront our entrenched ideas of sentience and intelligence, what some might call human exceptionalism. The approaches you hear today seek to understand non-human communication on its own terms and not ours. And doing so also brings up a whole new terrain of ethical and moral dilemmas. Who grants us consent to listen into the conversations of bats in their cave? Who owns their data 
And considering we inhabit such different life worlds, might we even have enough shared concepts that would enable any kind of translation? As Karen says, for example, maybe whale nouns are constructed like verbs, as fluid and ever-changing as their ocean home. And so on that note, without further ado, I bring you Karen Backer, Canadian scientist, author, professor at the University of British Columbia, a Rhodes Scholar with a PhD from Oxford University, and recipient of numerous awards for her life's work on digital transformation, environmental governance, and sustainability. Karen, hello. Welcome to the podcast. Hello. Great to be here. I was just sharing with you before we went live how delighted and excited I am about this interview specifically because there's so much that was revealed to me by reading your book. And what I would love to talk about today is to kind of weave a little bit about how advances in the hardware and in the AI and the kind of computer learning, what that new combination is allowing that wasn't possible before in terms of understanding all of the worlds around us, the worlds of animals and ocean creatures and bees and bats and all sorts of forms of life. And then the implications of that for conservation. Uh, I thought that there were some really audacious and fascinating ideas in your book that have completely stuck with me at every dinner party I'm going to. I'm like, did you know that we could? <laughs> and then also I would love at the end to get into some questions on ethics and data sovereignty and even consent. A lot of that was coming up for me as I was reading. But to kick us off, I want to start with the really sexy stuff, which is hardware. <laughs> because um, as I was reading the book, it really struck me that advances in the technology is really what made a lot of this possible. And as you have written, I quote, massive advances in how humanity is beginning to expand its hearing ability means that digital technology, which usually is associated from our alienation with nature, is offering us an opportunity to listen to non-humans in powerful ways, end quote. So could you bring us into the kinds of changes in technology that allowed this to happen? Like what does bioacoustics look like today compared to 10 years ago or 15 years ago? Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. I'll take us a bit further back in time. Do it. <laughs> so listening to nature is an ancient art. You know, practice in all sorts of ways and presence um, with landscapes, with other species. But of course, with the advent of industrial society, a new generation of machines was invented that allowed us to listen to nature and one another. And I would trace bioacoustics back over a hundred years. There were some fascinating experiments that were done when um, telephones and microphones were first invented. A really wonderful, zany uh, Slovenian biologist, for example, used telephones to have insects chirping at one another. At Harvard, one of the, the top telecommunication experts of the day, around the time of the Second World War, Professor George Pierce, in his spare time, invented ultrasonic listening devices that he tested on crickets. So right from the start, there was interest in, in detecting, recording the sounds of other species. But this field largely languished or was the focus of a small group of, of experts because the equipment was so bulky. Literally, to do some of the early work on bat echolocation, you would have to fill a minivan and then put more on top. So it cumbersome and slow. And then, of course, with digitization and Moore's Law applies, what we have seen in the field of bioacoustics in the past decade or two is essentially miniaturization. As um, listening devices have become more powerful, more portable, longer battery life come down in cost, and thus they are now able to be used by professionals and amateurs, citizen scientists, and many, many researchers who would not consider themselves bioacousticians but find this to be a really cool tool in the toolkit. So those tools are now available commercially, but they're also available as open source devices you can build yourself. Audio Moth is a great example. Hydro Moth is the aquatic counterpart. You can look them up, you can order them online. It's all open source. And so those devices cost less than $50. And thus we're seeing a sort of explosion in bioacoustics. 
with scientists and amateurs listening to the sounds of nature from the Arctic to the Amazon. So that's the first step. That is the the widespread availability of these devices that are like a prosthetic that do extend human hearing capacity beyond our sensory limitations, the listening capacities of our bodies. And I say that because a lot of communication in nature occurs above human hearing range in the high ultrasound or below human hearing range in the deep infrasound. And what we're discovering is that sound is everywhere. In nature, sound is everywhere and silence is an illusion. So that's the first, very first, and there will be many, but that's the first insight of the technologies is the world is awash with sound and humans have been largely unaware of these sounds and we're, we're slowly waking up to them thanks to this, this hardware. I, I love the notion that this hardware brings us closer and not further. And also communication, not just being vocal, but being physical, right? So there, are, I read in the book also advances in tracking the vibrations of bodies. Um, so these little accelerometer, yeah. am I saying that right? For the yeah, robo, robo bees. I think all the names yeah. in this field are amazing. I literally listed like all the funny names like orca slang and bat detective and robo bees in your book. <laughs> People are having so much fun. But these accelerometers can even detect the movements that you're then linking right. to the sound. So you're literally right. picking up all forms of communication from, from the animals. Right. So for those who are listening, you if you own a smartphone, you probably own an accelerometer. You just didn't realize it. They're often in smartphones. And that's why smartphones can be used to for early detection, for example, for earthquakes. This is no longer complicated technology. But when you put that technology in an acoustic um, recording device, you can pick up vibration as well as acoustic communication. So the way scientists talk about it, actually, I'll offer three words. One is bioacoustics, that is listening to an individual organism or species. Then there's biotromology, sensing the vibrations that are conveyed through solid substrates, which is actually a really important form of communication for plants, for insects, um, and is perhaps the most primordial form of communication. So bioacoustics and biotermology, but on the third term is ecoacoustics, and that entails listening to entire landscapes, which produce what scientists call soundscapes, so that our devices can now pick up these vibrations, um, whether through the air or solid substrates. And the key point, and this is the big second takeaway I'd, I'd love people to retain, that world of, of sound and vibration contains an impressive amount of complex ecological information and the ability of other species to decode those vibrations and learn a lot about their world and navigate through their world is astounding. And that's, um, that's the focus of many of the stories in the book. And it's what scientists are now starting to decode using digital tech, using artificial intelligence. Yeah. And let's get to the AI part. What I find fascinating is that algorithms that have been used to translate human languages, um, they're kind of building dictionaries based on shapes, let's say, and, and maybe we can get into the technicalities of that, or maybe it's confusing, but you can imagine this kind of Rosetta Stone or dictionary between other types of animal languages. So that's the first part, right? And the second part in the AI is obviously there's a ton of data which is impossible for any one human to go through manually. But advances in this AI can parse through, as you say in your book, a cacophony of voices, volume, rapidity, distinct individuals that a human ear cannot. So can you speak a little bit to how the the artificial intelligence, the AI, is being combined with this, um, you know, these portable, cheap, make them at home yourself kind of technologies? Mm, absolutely. Let's travel into a bat cave, Okay. In the heart of the bat cave, you're in darkness. There's a, a, a cacophony of sounds, many of which are above your hearing range. It's not possible for the human ear to track these sounds, associate them with individuals, understand how they might be correlated with behavior. But our digital devices can do just that. So scientists are using both bioacoustics but also biologgers. So these are like little Apple AirTags that you, or um, chips that you might put on anything from a butterfly to a bat to a bee to a whale. It tracks the individual animal. And if you combine the acoustic data with the movement data, you start to build up a pretty rich database. You can also use, of course, computer vision in the case of honeybees. 
So imagine that you have this huge data set. You might have thousands, tens of thousands, millions of vocalizations. You can associate them with individual creatures. You can associate them with uh, movements of those creatures. So this means that what would have been largely unintelligible to us as bat communication now becomes a, a rich data set that we can begin to decode for patterns. And of course, AI is very good at pattern recognition. Now, I don't want to exaggerate the capacities of AI because it can detect patterns, it cannot interpret them. So AI is, is narrowly good at this pattern recognition, but without the ecologist and biologist doing the hard work of labeling the data, training the data, interpreting the patterns, we, we wouldn't know much. So I think I would prefer to view this as not the AI doing something, but the AI augmenting what field biologists have long done, speeding it up, uh, enabling them to deal with these very large data sets and peer into aspects of the animal's lives and aspects of their vocal range that were formerly inaccessible to us. So what have we learned by doing this with bats? There's a couple of people I want to mention. There's uh, Jerry Carter at the University of Ohio. There's Yossi Yavel at the University of Tel Aviv. There's Mirjam Knornschild in Berlin. So this new generation of bat researchers is using these technologies and they're learning astounding things. Mirjam Knornschild's work has demonstrated that greater sack-winged bats exhibit vocal learning. We once used to think this was reserved for a very small set of species. What that basically means is bats of this species learn to speak like you and I did by listening to the adults around them, babbling back until they speak adult bat. These bats also learn territorial songs that they use for defense, mating, and a form of culture which they pass down between generations. The work of Jerry Carter has shown that vampire bats have these very rich social lives. They remember favors. They hold grudges. They socially distance and go quiet when ill. They trade food for sex. I know. Bats also have individual vocal labels, which identify gender, family, identity. Essentially, they function like names. So you start to see that the ability to decode the communication leads us into insights into the sort of much richer social lives of these animals than we were previously able to comprehend. And that is the power of augmenting. The AI doesn't replace, but it augments the work of the biologists. Oh my gosh, I'm still thinking about the bat trading food for sex. That yeah. has all sorts of implications. It, it's almost like there's this how would you like a digital intermediary between our human bodies, our understandings, and the living world? And I think it's it's pretty astounding that something that we've created is now helping us get closer to nature's intelligence. And at first I was like, oh, well, it's the technology's the intermediary between the humans and the other creatures. But then I was like, wait, actually, what if what if we are the intermediary for these new technologies to begin speaking and conversing? with the living world. I mean, are we at a place where the the artificial intelligence might be able to speak back? Okay, so there's a couple. Thank you so much. Those are great questions. I want to sort of pick them apart. The first is whether the AI is intelligent. To the extent that we're learning through the equivalent of large language models, the AI is not intelligent, right? It, it is good at pattern recognition, but it has no idea what those patterns mean. So I think we need to be very careful about our use of the term machine intelligence. So I guess the, the, the analogy would be, if you go to chat GPT and ask it to write your biography, I would bet quite a large sum of money, it will get your biography wrong. So because it's essentially a very um, elaborate autocomplete or pastiche machine. So if, if we were to ask an, an AI like ChatGPT to create sounds and engage in playback experiments in uh, using the vocal patterns of other species, it would confabulate and hallucinate. It would get some things right and some things wrong, just like it does when we use it for, for human purposes. That's why generative AI poses such a risk for mis- and disinformation, because it, it essentially... It ge generates false facts organically and cannot tell truth from fiction. And so using this technology to um, generate what are essentially deep fakes of animal sound would, I think, be, be unhelpful, if not dangerous, for other species. I think where we'll eventually get to is some combination of neurosymbolic and classical forms of AI with 
large language models, the neurosymbolic AI, um, you know, having the the reasoning, having the common sense, having the labeled data, having being able to interpret, and the large language models being good at scaling and, and, and being able to recognize patterns. Combining those will likely lead us to the ability to do real-time playback experiments with humans as well as, as other species, but we're not there yet. And there is a tendency in the field to over-exaggerate where AI may take us. That being said, I do believe that in the future, bioacoustics will combine with machine intelligence to explore the frontiers of biological intelligence, which is multiple, you know, many forms of biological intelligence, which are very different than our own and which are no less worthy of exploration. But in the meantime, don't believe the hype. <laughs> I really appreciate that. And I possibly, my favorite chapter in your book was when you said, you know, there's a lot of people out there who think, okay, all of this, you know, what you just described, the kind of the translation piece, you know, can we speak sperm whalish is glamorous, but actually we can use this for conservation today. And I want to get to some yes. of those examples because those for me are astounding. And the chapter of your book that also really stuck with me was the, um, and I love the, the title, The Reef Lullaby. Again, this is one of the things that just like has stayed with me since I've read it. And obviously, and for those who are listening, corals, they're like rainforests. They support one third of all known ocean species and they are going silent. They are dying. They're being affected by climate change. They're acidifying. Conserving the corals is so essential for underwater life. And before I speak to the conservation of it, one of the things that I couldn't quite wrap my head around was the coral, they, they create this larvae, right? Which are like their babies. And these larvae kind of navigate out to sea and they're hanging out far from their reef and they're creatures without airs, without nervous systems, no brain, no apparent way to detect sound, but they're able to swim back to the sound of their home reef. What is that? <laughs> what is that? Yeah. Uh, yeah. So humans tend to believe that what we cannot perceive does not exist. And so we miss a lot. We cannot hear most of the sounds of these coral reefs. I'm going to play a compilation of healthy reef sounds. It'll just take a moment. And I want you to just think about this. So those are astonishing sounds. They're incredibly lively. Some of them are still a mystery to scientists, but as you've heard, the coral reef is very rich with sound, uh, much of which is drowned out by motors or even the sounds of um, diving equipment. We have to be fairly subtle, silent listeners to attune to these sounds, but coral larvae can hear these sounds. So when they're born on these mass spawning events and then they wash out to sea, although they're microscopic, although they have no central nervous system, scientists believe they're somehow imprinting on that unique sonic signature, um, the sonic fingerprint, if you will, of their particular home reef. Now, when they wash out to sea, it's st still a mystery how they how they locomote. <laughs> Scientists used to think these tiny coral larvae were helpless, randomly pushed around by wind and waves and currents, but it does it does seem that they are using the hairs on the outside of their bodies, hairs, the cilia, which are similar to the hairs inside your ears that are enabling you to listen to me right now. Those hairs are likely essentially vibrating, part, you know, particle motion in the water, transferring the sound. And so those cilia are picking up the sounds. And then um, remarkably, the coral larvae are also using those cilia to locomote, that is to direct themselves back to the source of the sound. And in both in lab experiments and in the ocean, um, scientists have been able to track both fish and coral larvae who can do this. They prefer the sounds of healthy reef. They prefer the sounds of their home reef. The bigger implication is that it may be that every single organism alive is sensitive to sound, and they may be more sensitive than us, because in the case of coral larvae, they are listening with their entire bodies. Oof. And the, I, I want to get to the noise pollution part, of, obviously, as, as we speak about this, because that was, the, I think the implications of that are deeply concerning. 
there was a term, I, I'm such a kind of geek for, for new terms, <laughs> and there was a term he used called acoustic enrichment. And that was uh, in the part where the scientist Tim Gordon started playing sounds to the seascape. Yeah. Can, you, can you tell us about that? Yeah, so this whole generation of coral reef scientists is observing one of the most tragic and I think underreported environmental stories of our time, which is the mass die-off of coral reefs worldwide due to ocean acidification. And, and of course, th this has incredible implications for biodiversity loss as well. So Tim Gordon's work brought him to the Great Barrier Reef at the time of some mass bleaching events, um, mass bleaching caused by climate change, which acidifies the ocean. The coral become white, brittle, and essentially die. And rather than leave and go find some other healthy reef to study, he decided to stay and figure out whether these, these new findings, which were originally produced by Steve Simpson, a British researcher, about the sensitivity of coral larvae to sound, whether the, that new insight could be used to help regenerate coral reefs. So what Tim and Steve, who was actually a supervisor at the time, did is set up an experiment whereby they put speakers underwater on essentially pretty much dead coral reefs. The speakers might play nothing or white noise, or they might play the sounds of healthy reefs. In the case of the sounds of healthy reefs, this attracted fish and coral larvae and helped accelerate uh, reef resettlement. They're now working with this acoustic enrichment, which is sort of like music therapy for nature, in one of the largest reef restoration projects in the world off the coast of Indonesia. So it turns out that when you're trying to rebuild these coral reefs, you sort of have, um, you know, you, you might build substructures, uh, you might um, be doing some active transplanting or management, but if you could get the fish and coral larvae in earlier, you're really accelerating the repopulation of the reef. This is super exciting. And there are lots of other applications in marine environments. People are now attesting acoustic enrichment for lots of other species. I will say that it will not turn the tide for saving coral reefs worldwide. You know, this may help restore some biodiversity in some places and bioacoustics is a useful tool in our toolkit. But given the onslaught that coral reefs are facing, this this may only preserve a few, which is better than losing them all. So it doesn't absolve us of doing something about climate change, nor does it absolve us about doing something about noise pollution, which is an equally significant threat to marine biodiversity. But it is a ray of hope in a pretty challenging landscape. I mean, you're so right, Karen, and there is obviously no panacea. What's interesting is obviously I work in the field of conservation biodiversity and restoring the soundscape is not really spoken about. Like, you know, we can try and restore the soils or, you know, the, the functional ecology, but restoring the soundscape is not something I hear about very often. And that, that might just be because I'm operating in my bubble. But this seems to me to be the kind of positive version of the deep fake example, but it's not a deep fake because you're not speaking back some sentence you're creating. You're just speaking back a healthy sound that that ecosystem made. But this feels to me ethically completely different to, you know, let's talk to a whale about what it had for breakfast, right? Mm -hmm. Yes. Okay. So let's let's think that through. I'm, I'm glad you brought that up. In the case of a zoological version of Google Translate, which we have not yet achieved, but which some are trying to achieve, essentially what we are doing is um, engaging other species in dialogue using sounds that we generate through our digital devices aided by AI. And we we do that in a, in a world where other species do not have rights, personhood, and cannot be asked for their consent. And we don't know whether they're actually even interested in speaking with us. Of course, being hugely anthropocentric and, and hubristic, we're going to assume they want to speak to us, although maybe they don't. So that that agenda is one that's fraught with ethical pitfalls and I'm going to mention another important layer here, which is indigenous data sovereignty. Much of the bio and ecoacoustic data is harvested from indigenous traditional territories and without consent. And there's a very important dialogue that needs to be had about who owns this data. Indigenous communities, the researchers, the private companies that are harvesting this at an incredible pace. Surely not. The creatures themselves. Right now... We have far fewer safeguards for data collected 
about non-humans and from non-humans than we do for human data. And that, that will need, in my opinion, to be addressed before we embark on these, these translation initiatives. That's one complicated area. But if we leave that aside and just say, look, in the meantime, we can use bioacoustics for things that have immediate practical value in addressing our massive biodiversity crisis, and acoustic enrichment is one, combined with abating noise pollution, I think we're going to have huge benefits. And the reason is that noise pollution is very widespread, so widespread that most people aren't even aware of it, although it has pretty negative effects on human health. But uh, the, the cool thing, the silver lining, is when you reduce noise pollution, the effects are immediate significant and long-lasting because noise pollution doesn't persist in the environment. Chemical pollution can persist in our bodies, um, you know, in landscapes for generations. And noise pollution, the immediate relief, translates into positive conservation outcomes as we saw during the pandemic, the great quietening of human sound pretty much within the space of weeks or months, led to positive outcomes for other species. And so that was an unintended sort of natural laboratory experiment, but which demonstrates that reducing noise pollution makes space for the acoustic enrichment and restoring soundscapes, which could be a really powerful tool for conservation. And I really want to emphasize on, on what you're saying there around the soundscape, because, you know, if you think that every species over millennia has perfected its tone in order to communicate, right? Just like like in the radio stations, like everyone has their frequency and it's been absolutely honed and perfected. And you've been singing this song for thousands of years. And all of a sudden there's a sledgehammer or a motor or a road. And you're one of the most, as you said, like the, some creatures feel with all of their bodies. So the way that you're, you're trying to speak to your mate or your family, you're, you're literally unable to communicate. I mean, can you imagine what that must feel like? It must be awful. Like when I was reading your chapter on the seagrass, which, you know, they could be the oldest living plant in the world. Like these meadows are hundreds of thousands of year old. They're massive carbon stores, but forget the carbon. They're just old, ancient, incredible species that allow life. And as you were describing in the book, like how their, um, their cell walls rupture, I'm like, what must it be like to just be hanging out on the ocean floor, doing your thing, and all of a sudden you explode because of sound? Mm. I, and I, I want to dive into that a bit for people because it's going to be hard, I think, to grasp. But scientists have been doing a significant number of experiments studying the effects of noise pollution on other species. The typical methodology is you have a tank, um, you have some kind of apparatus for marine creatures, you put the species you're studying in the tank, a cephalopod, a plant, you expose the organism to levels of noise that are uh, similar to what they would encounter in the ocean if they were near, let's say, a seismic testing site or a loud motor. And then you study the effects on the organism. So with cephalopods, octopi, for example, they hear with their arms. The the, the organelles that, that, that hear are not close to their eyes like us. Those will literally be ruptured by, by loud noise. Um, plankton, the base of the ocean food chain, are killed by loud seismic blasts up to a mile from the blast site. It's like a sonic machete, a sonic scythe cutting through the water, killing, killing as it as it passes through. And Posidonia oceanica, Mediterranean seagrass that you mentioned, some of those, because they're clonal, some of those organisms, scientists believe, are between 100,000 and 200,000 years old. If you put them in one of these tanks and you expose them to loud sound, the organelles that they use for um, orienting to gravity and digesting food will be destroyed. They will they will rupture. Uh, they, and so it, the an analogy would be: imagine you there's a large blast near you. You you lose your hearing. Your eardrums are ruptured, but also your stomach explodes. So you cannot digest food. The fungal associations on these plants on the roots of these plants are also disturbed by the noise, and then. The blast also disrupts your sense of gravity, so you, you don't even know which way is up. You can't walk. That's how debilitating sound is for these organisms. So if we add that to all the other research that shows that this affects um, even larger organisms, you know, high levels of stress, um, reduced predation, reduced nutrition, uh, they're finding it more difficult to reproduce. You can see that noise pollution has reached epidemic levels in the ocean, 
I compare it to an acoustic smog. So imagine you wake up every day and you go outside your house and you cannot see more than a foot in front of your face. Well, you would be debilitated because so many aquatic organisms see the world through sound, which travels much better underwater uh, than light. Then what you've produced is uh, really uh, this acoustic smog that totally inhibits their normal rhythms of life. And in some cases, going to be a major contributor to species decline. And we're not including noise pollution in most environmental assessment regulations. We don't have noise pollution thresholds in many areas, and 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 we need to to change that. Again, I believe if we do, we would see some really positive gains in terms of conservation outcomes. This is fascinating to me. You know, as you were speaking, I was thinking about the planetary boundaries framework, right? And they have chemical pollution and all these others. How amazing would it be if we could get them to add in the planetary boundaries framework? So these are frameworks that shouldn't be surpassed for, you know, different mm -hmm. types of ecological and planetary limits. What if you had the acoustic layer? Because this is just as bad as chemical pollution or all the other kinds of climate catalytic. This is yeah. just as bad. And then it has all of these feedback loops into the things that people do care about. They should care about everything, but they do care about carbon cycles. They do care about, you know. So this for me is, it's like a hidden toxin that we're not aware of. Yeah, very well said. I mean, the planetary boundaries framework for those who are listening and don't know it, is a way to think about the planet in terms of, well, nutrients, flows of carbon, flows of nitrogen, and nutrients flows that need to be maintained and, and certain key limits and thresholds, which if surpassed could throw our planet's equilibrium out of balance. So climate change is one obvious example, but there are other ones that the planetary boundaries framework outlines. So I love what you said about adding an acoustic layer. I'd also add that that wonderfully enriches the planetary boundaries framework because that framework basically treats the earth as a large machine with throughputs of, you know, carbon, nitrogen, nutrients, etc. But if we add that biodiversity layer in and we start thinking about how sound not only harms or heals but also conveys complex ecological information, that starts to help us understand about how maintaining ecosystems is not just a matter avoiding over depletion, so we're not just thinking in terms of stocks and flows, but also enabling, sustaining the flow of information through and within the tree of life. Now that actually has very cool parallels to this new world of AI and its emphasis on data. So. The, the analog to ecological information is is machine information data. And, and I think there's an interesting confluence I see in the future about how digital tech can inform some ecological thinking, not only by this parallel between data and ecological information, which is not a perfect parallel, but again, by using digital tech to enrich our understanding of this complex ecological information, sometimes through unexpected techniques like sonification of environmental data, which will, I think, become a very important tool for environmental monitoring in the future. Sonification of environmental data, what's that? Is that what we were just discussing? Well, yes and no. So one can record acoustic information and, and play it back. You can then decode that information I'd love to play you the, I'll just play you a very brief example. It's the sound of a, a bat recorded in the ultrasound, slowed down so you can hear. So listen to this. So marvelous, right? When I play that, you know, live, people are uh, often ask people to guess and they can never guess what it is. But um, researchers can decode these sounds. And so a sample bat to English translation of what you just heard would be something like, pay attention. I'm a Pippus trellis natuzi bat, specifically male. My name is X. I am landing here. We share a common social identity and common communication pool. Now that what you just heard was recorded at the peak of the mating season and it's an advertisement call. It's like a pickup line by a bat. So 
when we record and decode those sounds, that is bioacoustics. But when I'm talking about sonification of environmental data, I'm talking about something different, which is taking data, be it electrical conductivity, be it nutrients, and rather than presenting them numerically, we present them sonically. That is, you um, you can transduce or you can translate that into sound as well as images or numbers. So sonification is actually a growing technique being used across a number of different fields, including astrophysics. And it lends itself to a very different way of interpreting data, detecting patterns, and also relating to the phenomenon at hand. Because when you listen to data, rather than mathematically interpret it, you're using head and heart, left brain and right brain, whatever categories you want to use, it really calls us to attention in a very different way. I'm going to do a little bit of Google search on this. And in the show notes, for those who are listening, I'm going to add some some information that people can use to go deeper on this subject because I think it's fascinating. In the previous season of the podcast, I played the mushroom song, which was the sounds of some actually trees in British Columbia, um, a forest and the fungi. So the whole kind of ecosystem yeah. into electrical sound, which was really cool. You know how you said earlier that, well, there's this issue around animal rights and ethics and, you know, have they given us consent to listen, let alone consent to speak back, right? So in the example of, uh, I think it was called whale safe, um, but this is about the mobile protected areas, which I think is also incredibly fascinating. We are listening to the whales, and I'd love for you to describe the project, but they are listening to these whales. I believe these are in the Santa Barbara Channel. And being able to detect where the whales are through sound are allowing us to create these flexible whale lanes across the ocean, which actually itself is powering ships to move differently. So can you tell us, first of all, what that project is doing, and secondly, how it fits into the frameworks that we've been talking about, you know, around like ethics and consent, because surely the Mm -hmm. whales would not want to be hit by boats, but we are using their activities to guide human activity and to create and affect these mobile protected areas. Yeah, this is another example of how bioacoustics could be used in conservation at scale. So to provide people with some context, One of the major causes of death of whales globally is ship strikes. They're like traffic accidents. And the closer the whales are to busy shipping areas, the more likely they are to be, not only because ships are obviously uh, denser, but also because the large uh, noise generated by the ships is disorienting for the whales. It's the acoustic smog we mentioned earlier. They can't figure out where the ships are coming from, so they're likely to get hit In the case of some species, like the highly endangered North Atlantic right whale off the east coast of North America, this is one of the major causes of of death. Now, the picture further complicates when we realize that whales are becoming climate refugees. They are moving, and they are moving because the ocean is changing. Temperatures are changing. The availability of food is changing. Marine fronts are moving. The whales move with them. And so their location is highly unpredictable and uncertain in a a changing ocean. This is illustrated by the fairly tragic plight of the North Atlantic right whales, which several years ago left their traditional area in the Gulf of Maine and moved several hundred miles further north into the Gulf of St. Lawrence, which also happens to be one of the busiest shipping areas in the world off the east coast of North America. And they were getting hit by ships at an alarming rate. So a wonderful researcher named Kim Davies at the University of New Brunswick, who had been working on bioacoustics, devised a new system. And the system is a bioacoustics-powered conservation device, which has been remarkably effective at preventing ship strikes. Not a single whale North Atlantic right whale has died of a ship strike in the zone where this program is now operating since it was launched. How does it work? So imagine aquatic drones combined with listening networks picking up acoustic communication from whales, even at long distances, because whale sound travels a very long distance underwater. 
using that information to triangulate the whale's location in real time. So there's a bit of acoustics, there's a bit of AI. Some programs also add in some oceanographic modeling of ocean temperature and predictive models to double check that what they're picking up is correct. Having determined the whale's location in real time, that is then conveyed to ship's captains who are presented with a map that's a bit like waves, but it's waves in the water. And essentially, when they get this information, if they're close to a whale, they have to stop or slow down and move out of the way. Fishers have to stop fishing in those areas because getting tangled in nets is another huge issue for these whales, nets and ropes. And so what we have created is essentially mobile protected areas that follow the whale. It's like a little cloak of inviolability. And as that mobile protected area follows the whale, it lends it greater protection than it would previously have had, but it also does something very curious. It translates our notion of protected areas, which we typically think of as having fixed boundaries, into something mobile and responsive. So you could, and they are doing this with other species like tuna in the Great Australian Bight. They migrate huge long distances, um, turtles in Hawaii. So this idea is highly scalable because any species that's vocally active, you could listen to, you could convey the information in real time, and ships would have to move out of the way. So one day these mobile whale lanes, which could take precedence over shipping lanes, could be applied globally, and that would actually be very beneficial to many marine species. There is also the idea we could have mobile protected areas on land operating the same way, obviously more complicated, but essentially what it does is it, it uses acoustics to allow these species to have some degree of influence in constraining and shaping human action. Only a few decades ago, we were harpooning these creatures nearly to extinction. And now we've created this technology that allows um, their voices to, to constrain human action. Now, I will say it is a fallacy. It is a self-deceit of the powerful to ascribe agency to others that they dominate when given conditions in which the subaltern does not really have freedom, does not really have power. So we cannot congratulate ourselves about this. It's a worthy thing to do, but it does not truly mean the whales have agency. If they did, they probably wouldn't choose to live in a world where you know, cheap goods were floating around by container ship and threatening them and their children. However, in the strange times we find ourselves, Perhaps it's the best we can do. Thank you for that point, actually. it's It hadn't occurred to me, and I think it's really important. It's a beautiful story of hope, I think, and I think it's also deeply realistic because, as you say, many animals will be climate refugees, and we can't assume that the areas we're putting aside for them will be adequate. Um, and as we share this earth with so many others, that flexibility for both our own human kin and our other kin will be essential. But you're right. We're still dominating the seascape and just trying to be a bit more respectful. I'm curious about the human governance aspect that needed to be in place, because getting container ships to actually shift and move corresponding to the whale's movements means that there must have been some law in place that That's meant that right. they had to yeah. abide by. Is that is that Could mm -hmm. that be applied for other species? I mean, is this a sort of legal intervention we should be thinking about? Yes. So in this case, the project is taking place in Canadian waters. Um, that is federal jurisdiction. The Department of Fisheries and Oceans is a responsible ministry in the Canadian federal government. They did pass regulations, and I believe the fines are on the order of two or $300,000 if the ships don't obey. Significant enough that for a lot of shipping companies, they will you know, comply. There is also a naming and shaming. The, a similar program does operate off the Santa Barbara Channel, and they publish a list of ships and their owners that are compliant or, or non-compliant. So the issue is that, of course, most of the ocean is not governed by nation states. There is a territorial limit, 200 nautical miles. Beyond that, there's very little governance of the open ocean, hence our global fishing crisis. Recently, there's been a couple of very promising developments. One is the new agreement on 30 by 30. 30% of the Earth's surface by 2030 for biodiversity protection. And the other is a set of advances in global ocean governance that is seeking to create marine protected areas 
in these areas that were formerly not really governed. The law of the sea is very um, weak when it comes to areas beyond national jurisdiction. But if we can start monitoring and protecting these areas of biodiversity beyond national jurisdiction, as they're called, that will help enormously because there are certain spots in the ocean that are like cradles, nurseries for biodiversity that, that currently are not really protected. That is going to have to be combined with other tools, some of which are digital. There's a wonderful organization, for example, called Global Fishing Watch. They use satellite data to monitor ships in real time with such accuracy they can tell if they're fishing or not and even what kind of gear they're using. If they're fishing illegally, that information can be conveyed in real time to Interpol or national authorities. So when the ships do come back to port, they can be uh, held responsible they're one of the Audacious Project winners this year, and I'm, I'm so excited about them scaling up their work. What it means is that there will be nowhere for environmental criminals to hide on the open ocean, and we have the data to prosecute them. Whether or not we have the political will is another question. What all of this would require to instantiate is a new uh, regime of planetary environmental governance that essentially is it's digital first, the first generation of environmental legislation dates from the 70s and is no longer really fit for purpose. So there is a there is a task here of setting up these new frameworks and standards for planetary environmental governance, which mobilizes these digital technologies. And that's what my next book is about. That's amazing, because I was going to ask you at the end what your new book was about. <laughs> I don't want to wait to actually tell me about it because I don't know much about it, but I know that it's called Smart Earth. Right. So I run something called the Smart Earth Project, which looks at how the tools of the digital age could be deployed to address some of the most pressing environmental sustainability issues like climate change and biodiversity loss. There are many pitfalls with digital devices, not least of which, um, you know, privacy concerns, um, an ecological version of platform capitalism, which is terrifying. So I don't sort of uh, simplistically or naively celebrate these technologies. But if in the right hands and operated under the appropriate ethical guidelines and constraints, these technologies do offer the possibility of reversing two key constraints of environmental governance in the 20th century. And instead of a, a scarcity of data, we will now have a hyperabundance of data. And instead of reacting after the fact, we will be able to react in real time or even predict. So if you, you have real-time regulation based on abundant data, you can start preventing or at least minimizing environmental crime. A great example is the new generation of satellites that can detect methane from space with a high degree of accuracy. And some jurisdictions are now planning to use this to fine methane polluters, methane being a uh, very significant contribution to global warming, find those methane polluters in real time. The Environmental Defense Fund has launched a satellite. There's a company called GHGSAT. But, but if you could now replicate that example across many other fields of conservation, including environmental crime, what you get is an unprecedented ability to, to act rather than react in the face of environmental harm. So the book offers us this exciting opportunity the longer-term possibility is that we do create new political frameworks, frameworks for expressing political voice, that are nascent examples of a multi-species democracies, in which other species' data is incorporated in a way that gives them some influence on human action and behavior in the short term. So I like to say the cognate of the Internet of Things is the Internet of Earthlings, and when you wire up the earth, you could also create a parliament of earthlings. The listeners familiar with Bruno Latour and his work on parliament of things may understand the analogy whereby it's not only humans participating in governance, but to enable this, we need some sort of mechanism whereby they, their voice is shared. And digital tech is one potential, not perfect, but it's one potential means of doing so. And so in the next book that's coming out with MIT Press next year, I explore some of these examples of nascent multi-species democracy enabled by digital tech. Oh my gosh, you're going to have to come back on the show for that one. Yeah, this yeah. Is the, you literally tick like a box of every single thing I'm passionate about in like the, in like one book. Because the thing is, it's meeting other species on their terms and not ours. And you've used that phrase and I've used that phrase before. And I think that this is 
such a dramatic evolution in terms of, you know, back in the day, we tried to make animals pass intelligence tests by seeing if they were smart in ways that we were smart. Oh, a crow can use tools. That means it's like smart like us. Or, you know, a dolphin can recognize itself. That means it's smart like us. And to a certain extent, okay, cool. But this whole conversation we're having for me is the, it sounds arrogant, it's like the future of the conversation of where we are with other animals, but it feels a lot more respectful and holistic. Yeah, it just, it just, doesn't ask them to be like us for us to understand their needs, try and adapt ourselves around what species are. And uh, the act of decoding is is one part of that that is enabling what I think is is a profound worldview shift, actually. I love the way you phrase that. And look, I believe that it might be possible to develop a greater sense of empathy and respect for other creatures using these technologies. At the end of the day, digital devices, though, only offer us a simulacra of other creatures' worldview and ways of being and communicating. The bat sound I just played, we'll never know what that sounds like to a bat. So that I think part of the respect has to be a humility in understanding maybe our ability to connect with these other species is still going to be limited. There's a kind of strange yearning for connection that can slide over into a dominating embrace that we think is some kind of communion. But like an over-enthusiastic mother. <laughs> like, oppressive, oh. yeah. Mm-hmm. So I, I feel like yeah. there is such a pent-up yearning for reconnection that I want to honor, but I think it's also important that we don't use this to barge in to other people's. These are non-human persons, worlds and conversations that is really important. And I, I will say also that, of course, many people who use these digital technologies live in worlds that are very divorced from place, from an, a sense of um, belonging to place, responsibility and stewardship for a place or a species. And so that also creates dangers because we are untethered and retethering to place is probably also a precondition for using some of these technologies responsibly, which is why I talk in the book about the salience of Indigenous stewardship and their Indigenous laws um, and legal orders, which offer not something we should appropriate, but we should recognize as pre-existing, still existing, and offering us a reminder that there's a very different set of relational obligations to place, to land, to other beings that we can't pick apart and just pick and choose. You know, I'd still like to be able to travel the world in my jet plane, but I'd also like to be able to talk to animals because that's cool. Maybe (laughs) it's not really going to turn out that way. That's so true, Karen, like that, the integrity across all ways of being. And yeah, I think I'm going to have someone come on the show later who does sort of psychic interspecies communication. Sounds kind of wacky, but a lot of people do claim that they can just heart to heart, you know, mind to mind communicate with other species. And that's been shown, you know, horse whisperers or people who come in when there's an animal that's really suffering and they manage to create a bond, um, which which is more relational than, yeah, I'm flying around, but I also listen to animals. Uh, a last question to end this amazing episode, but you're, please do come back on to talk about your book when it's out. What do you listen to when you're not listening to animal sounds? Oh, great question. A big range. My daughter, one of my daughters plays the harp. So we, the harp, of course, being the we think the oldest instrument. I also love electronic dance music. Oh. So bef- before <laughs> my talks, I often listen to electronic dance music. So I would say surprisingly eclectic. My favorite to listen to before talks is um, hip hop. Um, I think there's there's a lot of joy in music and a lot of the environmental movement comes across with a certain beatific, serene, lovely presence that is very meditative. And I think it's important to bring all sorts of energy to the conversation. And music does that. You know, I I feel like there's a lot more accessible energy to us in these environmental conversations that 
uh, in listening to your big diversity of music, we can draw on then sometimes the slightly emotionally monotone, but very beautiful way that the environment is often talked about. Yeah, yeah, we yeah. should be energized. We should be angry. We should mm-hmm. be joyful. We should want to dance. All of 100%. these things should be available to us. Yeah, I gave, I gave a talk today at a high school and, you know, the quote, we don't really know where it came from, but, you know, I want a revolution I can dance to. I think that's exactly mm-hmm. what you're speaking to. I'll come dance hip hop mm-hmm. with you. Karen. Oh, excellent. <laughs> Thank you so much for coming on the show. It's been amazing having you here. And um, I think this might be the longest show notes I'll ever create because you threw out so many incredible references that I really want everyone to pick up on and also throw in some from your book. So Guys, please do go to the show notes because I think you could go down many rabbit holes. Karen, thank you so much. Thank you. It was a pleasure. That was Karen Backer, author of The Sounds of Life. It's pretty cool to imagine Karen dancing backstage to hip hop before silencing crowds into a state of wonder with her research. I think you'll find it clear why bioacoustics are a fascinating window into other life worlds. I've really filled out the show notes this time with links for you to keep digging deeper. And here's a provocation for you to take home. The next time you're walking out and about, try to pause and imagine all these conversations happening around you. Below your feet in the soils, in the plants, in the air you breathe that came from phytoplankton that themselves are influenced by whale song. And become aware of the noise not just the silence, but the noise that we humans create, imagining what it might be like to be on the receiving end of that. And here's another question. Would you want a Rosetta Stone of animal translation to exist? How do you feel about humans potentially speaking back? And as I mentioned in the beginning, would it even be possible for us, not truly knowing what it's like to be a whale, to decode the languages they speak as enmeshed as they are in their surrounding ecosystems. I'm really mulling over these questions and would be very curious to hear from you. So my friends, you know where to find me and I'll see you soon where we go a little bit deeper into the realm of sound, but this time through music. I'll see you soon.